Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is the man who stole all the stuff I needed for my wedding. <laughs> uh, I am the Adam Glass, and uh, how apropos, this is, uh, we're recording this on your 11th anniversary. Yes, um, yes we are. Of, of the American version of your wedding. You did miss the grandfather clock, though, I would like to point out for mine as well, which was disappointing. But, but as you may recall, uh, since it took place roughly... Uh, 11 years ago was was about the same liturgical cycle as as this time uh your wedding did take place in an Amer- american church with just a huge huge easter crucifix <laughs> yep yeah, yes it did uh and snow on the ground it was delightful yeah yeah um i did not steal the cross uh to, I mean... to facilitate your wedding but i i i assumed you did so i'm a little disappointed to find out that, that is... you did it that is an inaccurate vision of your wedding, too. Uh, I do. It was. It was. It was a Lutheran church. It was or a what's Methodist. Well, Methodist. Methodist. Sorry, it was a Methodist church. It was a. Uh, it was just a cross, not not a crucifix. Yeah, it, which and implies, actually, that I, I'll let you yeah. know a secret. That cross is always there. Um, is it always there? I, yeah, I, that giant cross is always. There. I seemed. Uh, I seemed no to have picked up because it's Methodist, yeah. but. I seem to have picked up in conversation that it was something that had been placed there for for a Good Friday or Easter service, but maybe it's possible I was... that you might be thinking of a different one than I am. The big maybe. one at the back of the at the back oh, of the no, altar the... is all, was always there. I seem to recall one being like in the center of the stage, but maybe I'm I'm imagining. Or I mean, it's possible. I can barely remember it anymore. Uh, yeah. Honestly, I mean, I have pictures, but like, there's nothing in yeah. the pictures. So I think there were a lot of other uh, sort of Easter accoutrements floating yes. around uh at our wedding that's for sure uh uh my uh my favorite thing that happened at your wedding um as long as we're we're spending this time reminiscing about your wedding uh was uh was you know very very small uh bridal party i was the only groomsman as best yep. man and uh and i had of course the ring in my pocket for that for that time of things uh the minister in charge, apparently your mother or someone, uh, had warned her that I was a joker. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how that no happened. One under, no one understands what I am, and uh, so so uh, during uh, during the rehearsal the the night before, uh, she had told me she had told me no jokes, and I was like, "What? <laughs> okay, of course." Yeah, I don't know. I, like. I don't know what people uh, think. I don't know what my mother thinks of you, but yeah, yeah. But uh, but but during during the service, uh, when I reached to get the ring, I I slipped. Uh, it slipped in my fingers <laughs> as I was pulling it out. So I hesitated for a second uh, in in handing it off, uh, and uh, and the minister very quietly hissed, "Not funny." Uh, that sounds about right. To which uh, I said, not joking, but she was miked. So, um, right. So the entire the entire uh, uh, auditorium uh, heard her say, "Not funny." Um, right. Yeah. Uh, with no idea what was going on whatsoever. Before we get into this week's movie, 
I want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash lostincriterion. If you want to support us, keep us going. Uh, I mean, we'll do this else <laughs> anyway, but yeah, this we is do, not stopping. We do welcome, yeah, we do welcome uh, financial compensation. Uh, we are we are deep month. deep into sunk cost fallacy at this point oh, for yeah, sure. Absolutely, too. absolutely. <laughs> Can't stop now. Yeah, we're I'm gonna nearly, take this shit to my grave. We're nearly a third of the way in. Uh, <laughs> uh, we are we are currently over a third of the way, but considering the growth rate, see the way I've been thinking about it is we are over halfway to our original goal. Yeah, I believe because there was only like six hundred titles when we. That's started, also right? fair. Yeah. <laughs> but we are steadily steadily marching forward nonetheless and for a dollar a month you can help us out um patreon.com slash lost and try patreon.com slash cash dot buy slash forward slash backslash criterion comma we need money yes dot biz patreon.com slash lost in criterion uh for that dollar uh, you get access to uh, bonus episodes. They're non-criterion films. You get to vote on what episode we're going to do. And, uh, yeah, we have fun over there. Um, yeah, we Sometimes do. I let uh, supporters uh, pick what uh, – put together the entire vote list themselves and just uh, – just I, I really through. think we should I'm, lean on them more for that, frankly. I am absolutely open to bribes. So <laughs> – the 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 trick is sometimes the person will say, "Oh, we we should watch this movie," and then I have to format a list around that movie that will still make people want to vote for that movie. <laughs> so, see, I I feel like, yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying, and I understand why you do it that way, but I feel like that's the sort of devil's bargain that they've entered into by asking mm-hmm. us to watch a certain yeah. movie. It's like I can't make that happen. This is not right. a fiat right. that's system. Fair. Mostly. Give me a list that makes that you know. If, if they, I, I would say that in that scenario, you might want to you might want to just put it back on them and be like, all right, well, give me a list that uh, <laughs> that makes sure what you get what you want. Right, and right. that's all Kazam somehow, and then the one movie <laughs> they want to watch. Yes, Kazam is always on the list. That is, no matter who makes the list, uh, Kazam is option number five. Uh, so if you want to make us watch Kazam, get over there. Yeah, I mean, this could turn into the Kazam cast if you want it to be. We'll make it the Kazam cast. Uh, Like I said, they're always non-criterion films, and uh, yeah, we watched a real real roller coaster of movies over (laughs) there. Uh, As of this recording, uh, the most recent episode posted is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Which is a lot of fun. Here Pat and I discuss alternative character interpretations for Willy Wonka. There's only one Uh, correct one. (laughs) You've got to listen if you want to find out what it is. Listen, as Pat and I discuss alternative uh, theological interpretations of Willy Wonka <laughs> and the Chocolate Factory, um, and imagine a terrible cosmology for the world. Anyway, that, that is legitimately uh, the only interpretation that is functional, considering the fact that the guy is always present when the ticket's found. That's fair. That's fair. There's that's literally true. only one possible interpretation. Ah, uh, Willy Wonka's watching us. Uh, and judging us. And judging us. Absolutely judging us. Uh, yeah. For a little extra over there, $5 a month, we'd like to thank those people on air. And uh, thank you to Christopher Otto, who's currently our only $5 well, supporter. Yes, thank you. So he's going to get thanked every episode until we have enough where we actually have to start rotating people out. 
a little above that, we do something that I think is pretty dang great. Uh, Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently, and I get that printed up on a postcard and mail that off. Uh, I would currently suggest letting that postcard sit in your mailbox for at least three days uh, before reading. But the temptation to see what it is, it's just so high. Or grab it with gloves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tongs, tongs would work. Tongs would work, tongs would work. I do not suggest disinfecting the postcard, one, because I think that would damage both the art and the ink. Because yeah, it would probably back, all run off, yeah. On the back, I write a little note thanking you, talking about what the movie is, or just ruminating on what's going on in my life. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> yeah, you can enjoy. I don't, I've I've never actually, I, I've, I don't receive them anymore, so I don't know what the back says anymore. But uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I did send I sent you a few. Uh, yeah, it's okay. I own the original end, files. I can make them anytime yeah. I want. Uh, to that end, though, actually, every note is uh, is at least slightly different. Usually, usually, I tailor them to to who I'm writing to, and I get to. I don't want to write the same thing to everyone. So yeah, but, I understand that. You're yeah, yeah. that's a yeah. good thing. It's it's part of the it's part of what comes with the card is not just a drawing, but also a personal right. letter, a personal note. Yeah. But we Which also does like not to scale if we get too many people, I would like to point out. <laughs> Eventually, I will have to create one of, those, uh, one of those devices where I can mount a pen in multiple pen holders <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and write 10 postcards at a time. Uh, I'll have to get a lot more fountain pens. Uh, we also like to support, uh, uh, to thank uh, our supporters at that level on air. Uh, so thank you to uh, Michael McGrath and Jason Westhaver and to Adam Speakerman. Adam yeah, thank uh, you. has just popped up to that level recently, uh, and uh, we're grateful to have have them all supporting us at that level and above. Uh, uh, so thanks. S- yes, yeah, thank you very much. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion if you want to get in on that, and we are grateful to those who have and uh, grateful to you listeners who are, yeah, who are listening. Definitely. This week we are talking about the Three Penny Opera in German, Die Three Groschen Oper. Uh, in French, I have no idea, actually. Uh, here's the thing about this movie. Uh, the French and the German versions were shot at the same time, which is something that was fairly common at the time. And actually, I believe we talked about Pabst doing it with the, uh, with the last film of his that we talked about. Um, but... Uh, uh, it's just... It's weird to me that this DVD includes the French version of this film under the title, the French title of the opera. But the main film and and the DVD's title is the English translation of I, the Three Benny Opera. The, the criterion system is, as discussed on many occasions, completely <laughs> baffling. Yes, yes. As as next week's film will be completely indicative of. <laughs> yes. God, next week's film is. I still don't know what that film is. What that DVD is actually called. Yeah. Uh Anyway, uh, this is the 1931 uh, uh, film version, as I said, by G. W. Paps of the 1928 musical. Uh, the Three Penny Opera musical theater production, I guess, is the most accurate way to describe that. It's not uh, technically a play an opera? with music. Yeah, a play is, with is music. How, is how Brecht uh, describes yeah. it: is a play with music. 
<laughs> that is uh, that is written and directed uh, and uh, by uh, Bertolt Brecht, uh, working with composer Kurt Weil. Um, not to be confused with uh, American musician Kurt Weil, the lead singer of uh, the War on Drugs. Um, uh, Kurt Weil and Brecht wrote this together based on... Uh, this is where it, it starts to get real complicated. <laughs> God. They wrote this based on John Gay's uh, 18th century English ballad, The Beggar's Opera. And by based on, I mean plagiarized from, uh, in that it includes uh, most of the Beggar's Opera. Uh, right. In, including whole songs. Uh, on top of that, Brecht uh, was working from a translation of uh, <clears throat> the Beggar's Opera uh, by Elizabeth Hauptman, uh, who may have been his girlfriend, Uh who uh, who did the bulk of the work here, right? Because Brecht just yeah. took whole cloth. <laughs> um, but uh, Hoffman's translation had had been staged. Um, so part of part of the original plan with the Three Penny Opera was to start it off with the same opening number as the Beggars, uh, the Beggars Opera, mm-hmm. uh, so that audiences. Brecht, Brecht's galaxy brain here. Uh, okay. That, so that so that audiences would be tricked into thinking they are watching the Beggar's Opera, and then uh, which is an outdated uh, social commentary, right? Because it's aimed at the aristocracy. But then this is aimed at the bourgeois who would be watching this. So we trick them into hearing the critique of the bourgeois. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, sounds like it's totally going to work. Well, on on top of that. Uh, a number of th- a number of things complicate that in the play. One is that the guy playing McKeith uh, decided he needed an introduction song. Okay. So the one thing the one thing we're pretty sure that Brecht actually wrote, which again Brecht didn't actually write, uh, is Mac the Knife. Uh, but as a compromise, they put it at the beginning of the play, but didn't let McKeith actually perform it. Instead, they created this character <laughs> of the street performer. Yeah. Oh my god! And gave it to him. Wow. Uh, therefore, undoing the entire idea of tricking people that this is the Beggar's Opera because now there's a different introductory song to it. Right. <laughs> and then. Oh my god! On top of everything else, Brecht uh, has a sort of left-leaning, not even lefting, leftist commentary. In it, and he is a leftist, but he is slowly becoming a Marxist over the course of the 20s, the 30s, and moving forward. Uh, and generally, generally, scholars, uh, from what I've what I've interacted with this week, uh, everybody says that before he became a Marxist, his work was a lot better. But after he became a Marxist, his work sold a lot better, which is oh weird, which is crazy and wonderful. Uh, but but what well, that means? But when you consider the time frame he's operating yeah. in, it does uh, kind be, of make sense, I guess. And because of that time frame, what that also means is between 1928, when the play came out, and uh, what 19 uh, 1931, 31, yeah. uh, 1930, when he is hired to adapt his own play to this <laughs> to a film, 
uh, his politics have changed enough that he wants to make it more overtly leftist for the film version. Right. So he locks himself in a cabin in southern France uh, because he's been hired to write the original screenplay. And after months of all this and and uh, Pops coming out with some uh, some friends of Brecht's who are also leftist playwrights, uh, Brecht comes back and says, all right, I didn't write anything, but here's, here's what we'll say. Instead of me writing the screenplay, I'll write an outline and someone else can write the screenplay and I'll have final authority over the screenplay. And Nero, the film production company, says, okay, I guess that's all right. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I I imagine the way they say it is is just as skeptical as you sound right now, which right. is like, <laughs> right, right, yeah, okay, I guess, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, so what then? The outline Brett comes out back with is like full Marxist. Oh my and, god! <laughs> and they're like, this is not what we bought. We bought your play. Uh, what is this? <laughs> we oh, bought so your play. It ends. It ends with the fight. Now, now a difference that exists in the movie versus the play is that the Beggar's March takes place in the play. The Beggar's March does not take place. It okay. is. It is suggested, uh, but it is successfully stopped. Um, Wait. Okay. So now my question it's not, is: if it's I'm sorry. It's not stopped. even successfully stopped. It's not successfully stopped. Is my understanding of the play? It's been. I've seen the play once, and it was a very long time ago. It was while I was in college. I don't really remember it. Um. Uh. It is my understanding that, uh, uh, what's it? The 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 king of the beggars, the 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 character, yeah. um, Polly's dad. Character names, I can't remember yeah, any of the characters' names. Peachum, uh, Peachum threatens the march of the beggars and then doesn't follow through on the threat. Okay. Uh, so my question is, and because I've never seen the play, yeah. Um, my question is, is how does the pl- how does the story resolve if? Peachum is not essentially ruined by his own actions. Uh, the story actually resolves originally with Peachum, uh, Tiger, the police chief, and uh, and Mac all becoming the ruling board of the bank. Right, but but what do they just do that because it sounds like a good plan rather than the right. result of their own ruin? Uh, it sounds like a good plan. Okay. Mag- it, it it is Deus Ex. It is they they openly commentary comment on it himself, and this dates back to the Beggar's Opera too, Gay's version, uh, where uh, Mac is uh, pardoned by the new queen and also given a lordship. Uh, <laughs> okay, is that, so just pure uh, Deus just pure Deus Ex Machina just yeah happens, but but openly in the songs they say, well, it's got to have a happy ending. So <laughs> okay. So they yeah. hang a lampshade on it, and it's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> and and you know the original play, gay gay's play is is anti aristocracy, and it's it's you know the entire point of all of this is that the people in charge are crooks, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, and that we get that yeah. in both versions of the, like, and we get that we get that in every version. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so. <laughs> An Where am I in the history I can get of this? Behind. Oh yeah, I, so no, he no problem. <laughs> so so Breck Breck presents the outline uh, that's way not what they want, right? Uh, so uh, uh, because when when someone buys the rights to a book or to a play, they want that, 
right? Yeah, they, they're uh, buying the rights to the thing that they saw right. in the theater. Right. When someone yes. says, that I want to adapt the play, they normally... So anyway, uh, <laughs> Brecht, who is already taking all credit for all of this himself, uh, <laughs> uh, somehow <laughs> uh, becomes more anti-bourgeois <laughs> bourgeois after he's making money because because this was everyone expected this to bomb and it was a huge hit uh and he becomes immensely rich from it uh and then he's he's getting paid uh 14,000 Reichmarks uh to write the script for this which which Nero says okay fine to the outline uh and uh that's for they paid 40,000 uh, 40,000 Reichmarks for the I have no idea what this translates in today's dollars, but they paid forty thousand <laughs> for money, the rights I'm to sure. the book, or forty thousand for the rights to the play, and then fourteen thousand on top of that to have Brecht adapt the screen, the the screenplay. Uh, Brecht comes back uh, <coughs> with with the outline, <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, <laughs> the executives of Nero actually thought that was okay um, until they saw the outline. Which was uh, much more, let's say, provocative than uh, than the original, uh, and uh, they fired him, and they fired okay. Wheel, uh, and uh, and and Brecht, Brecht and Pops were bumping heads, and Wheel, while as well, uh, so they fired fired Brecht and Weil from the production of the film. Uh, Brecht and Weil sued. Uh, the court found in favor of Weil, but against Brecht because he breached the contract because he didn't okay. actually adapt his play. Uh, and then Brecht wrote, <laughs> this is the best part, the best part for me. Uh, afterward, Brecht wrote a lengthy essay called The Three Penny Lawsuit. Uh, according to the Criterion essay, uh, in which he claimed that he had undertaken the whole legal process as a social experiment, quote, oh to demonstrate God. the whole, to demonstrate the worthlessness of a creator's rights in a capitalist society. Wow! <laughs> Just wow! <laughs> like that's that's an awesome move, though. Honestly, like it's a terrible oh, one. Yeah. It's like patently obvious. Like it's sadly obvious. But like, yeah, just like no, I just did that on purpose. I lost right. that. Uh, right. I lost that lawsuit on purpose uh, just to show you all how much bullshit this is. <laughs> I did it for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Brecht, what a guy. Yeah, uh, no, pretty amazing. Uh, really, listen, like, I am. I am on board with the idea of remix culture. All right. Uh, Brecht, Brecht's uh, using the beggar's opera to write his own opera. That's great. I like that. Well, assuming he wrote anything. Right. At uh, all. Brecht's, Brecht's taking credit for everything, uh, <laughs> including uh, the translation. and saying he wrote this when, when he's basing it almost wholly on uh, someone else's translation. Right. And then, and then when he's hired to adapt it to a screenplay, not even <laughs> yeah. being able to do that. <laughs> I mean, it it goes to show you something really important to keep in mind. 
I can agree with somebody's fundamental politics and also think he's a piece of shit. <laughs> right. Right. Like, this is true. This is a thing that can be true. Like a person who agrees with me about like the way the world works can also be a garbage person that I do not like. <laughs> right. One hundred percent. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, uh, especially in the sort of modern era. Because I think people do honestly, honest to God, really do actually lose sight of the fact that, like, you don't have to like a person that right. you agree with. Right. Like, it's not a requirement that you also be besties. You can just be like, yes, this person is right. The world's this way. Also, that person is a bad person. And it's also, it is also very right to say, uh, not only is this person a bad person, even though they have proper opinions on a hell of a lot of stuff, they should not have power. No, yeah, this person <laughs> is not a good person to be in charge. Yeah. Um, and Brecht, not a great person to have in charge of anything, apparently. No, no. Brecht seems like a danger to himself and other people, frankly. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, one of the other leftist playwrights uh, and friend of Brecht uh, I cannot remember his name offhand, was then hired to actually write the screenplay. And Brecht was mad at him for taking the job. And the guy basically said, Brecht, I did this so that some of the politics might actually survive in the film. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> and sure enough, some of them did. Though the film... <sighs> well, I feel like... Go ahead. I feel like the film's introduction of the beggars as all fakes. Um, there is there is something I remember from the play, and that is that our introduction to the whole beggars guild is of someone who has been uh, begging outside the guild, being built and beat up, uh, and then he's brought before Peachum, and Peachum explains the system. Uh, <clears throat> I do not recall if in the original play the system involved such theatrics as literally everyone pretending to be lame um, in some way. Yeah, see, but, uh, that, I, you know, that's where we kind of do run into a weird problem with this, uh, with this movie, honestly, is that, like, it has things I agree with and then things that are, like, you know, obviously bad, right. too, right? Like, right. that is just a, an obviously bad point to make in a movie or, like, in a story, right? Um, Paps is making a much broader farce than the political satire that either Three Penny or Beggar's Opera were, right? Yeah. Um, so Paps, Paps is saying also, you know, bankers are crooks too. But Paps isn't saying these beggars are downtrodden necessarily. Now, one thing that Brecht wrote that did end up in it is toward the end um the uh i think it's in the uh in the final uh the macklin knife reprise that uh that ends uh he says um this is this is the uh the german translation or the translation from the german so it's not if you if you see an english version of the play it's going to have a slightly different translation of this section uh, but uh, but we in, what he put in is there are some who are in darkness and others are in light, and you see the ones in brightness; those in darkness drop from sight, and that's that's what we hear. 
over the final view of the Beggar's March. Uh, you know. Uh, so, so there is still that final, no one cares about what happens to the poorest of the poor. Uh, right. Which is something that is still politically true in much of the West. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. So that's, that's the other thing is that Brecht, despite them constantly, his politics constantly going further and further left, uh, Ironically, with with him having more and more success, which which I guess is why I'm a republic for you. Right. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a whole thing that right has to be sort of taken as part and parcel of this. Is the and fact it, that the Weimar Republic was a weird place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, he he still he was on that steady march, right? And he he did want. At least idealistically, he cared about poor people and hated the rich, <laughs> hated the bourgeois. Um, whereas Pabst was, was, again, just making a broader farce of things. And that's fine, uh, I suppose. Though I think, I think that leads... Pabst embodies... Uh, an ideology that I have real problems with today, which is an unarticulated view that all politicians are the same. Yeah. They're no, all I, I agree. Yeah. That, I mean, there's he, yes. Like when you, when you start making these kinds of far, like these kinds yeah. of uh, farces, you end up with a situation where you no longer have degrees. Right. Uh, in your, in your worldview. And also where you start assuming that there are no people operating in good faith left. Right. Like that right. the world has 0% people who actually believe the things that they say. And that is a very dangerous thing to say in Germany in 1931. Absolutely. Totally. It's a danger. Uh, it is a dangerous thing to say anytime. We just have right. the, the power of hindsight telling us that right. like that was, that was a particular dangerous thing to say at the time. But like, if it's fully into the same theory, like the same like mindscape that exists now, where people say things like the like the phrase of virtue signaling exists, they they come from the same place of believing that no one operates in good faith. Yeah, that, that there's not a single soul in this world that believes the things that they say, other than possibly you. <laughs> right, right. That's up for grabs because some I I. I, I am forced to assume that some of the people who say that say that because they know it's true of themselves, and some people say that of say that because they believe they're the only ones who don't do that. Um, I I assume both of those uh, groups exist, but the point being that 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 there exists even in modern society a fairly substantial group of people who legitimately believe that there are no people who mean the things that come out of their mouths. And and I think extending something like a belief that it's all crooks, it's crooks all the way down, and applying that to, for example, uh, the Beggars Guild is is sort of representative of that. It, it gets complicated because something like a Beggars Guild would, when su if such a thing were to exist, it has the potential of having a certain level of politics in it, like that. 
You know what I mean? Because it is no longer just a sort of loose affiliation. It is an organized structure where someone gains power by being at the top of it. Yeah. Which which is unfortunately what we see of Pabst moving through the 30s and 40s. He stayed in Germany. Right. He, he had an offer for jobs in Hollywood. Uh, and, and he did work in America for a little bit. Uh, but he came back and uh, made a couple of movies for Goebbels and generally never stated he regretted doing that. <laughs> right, because he probably, I, I mean, it seems sadly to say, yeah, likely that he never saw a distinction between that group and any other group. Right. Uh, you know, I think I think also uh, the idea that you know, his choice was between, you know, still being relatively famous in Germany or being a workaday director for some Hollywood corporation uh, where no one knows his name um, is probably probably something that affected that decision, too. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I, I I think when people do that calculus, that's a that is a very sad calculus to do, to yeah. say like, oh, I I'm not good enough to be famous somewhere else, so I better stay here and work for for monsters. Right, right. It's a very weird and sad calculus to do. Yeah. Uh. He. Uh, the. The Nazis did ban this movie in 1932, unsurprising. Shocking. I (laughs) never would have expected that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Pabst made two movies in Nazi Germany, The Comedians in 1941 and Parasasis in 1943. Uh, He was... He was kind of forced to return. Uh, he was planning to get out and get to uh, get to Germany or get to the U.S. rather, uh, but uh, but among the excuses he offered <laughs> uh, were that he had a hernia operation in Vienna. Uh, this okay. right after right after the Nazis <laughs> took Austria. Uh, He's like, well, I got the tickets in Normandy, but I got it. I got this hernia operation, and then by the by the time, I'll, and I've got a my, uh, I gotta sell off some of my mom's stuff, and uh, <laughs> this this is literally, <laughs> and uh, this is literal, Jeez. yeah, and then <laughs> and then this thing going on, I got this other thing, got and then by the, the time. <laughs> By the time everything was cleared up, uh, Germany had conquer- conquered Poland, and there was no fleeing. So, right, yeah. Uh, so whether or not he he really wanted to get out of Nazi Germany, he dragged his feet long enough that he couldn't, and then he decided to stick around and make a couple movies for Goebbels. Uh, yeah. So, so Pabst. Uh, right. Yeah. But Man. you know, he also. What was that last Pabst movie we watched? I don't actually remember. I don't even. What was remember. the name of it? I mean, I remember a lot about it and the fact that it ends in uh, the way the way it ends. Pandora's box. The way it ends with everyone getting murdered by 
<laughs> by Jack right. the Ripper for no reason. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah. Uh, I think he made some stuff in America. Maybe maybe I'm wrong on that. I mean, I now did, now I'm looking at his his filmography because you know why not? He made some stuff in France. Yes, uh, a modern hero at least is an American film. Um, if nothing else. Uh, but yeah. So, yeah, Paps, Paps, like I said, seems to have an equivocation of of a both sidesism here, of of poor and and upper class that I can't I can't really blame him for because that's that's a German view too. That's the view of Metropolis, right? That's that's the the head and the heart that the the workers need management to uh, to get things done. Whereas the management needs the workers well, it to is, it actually is do one, the things. It is a it is a viewpoint that exists in Germany at the time. Right, right, right. Certainly, like, other things do. What there are there are others that are also pretty famous. Right, uh, but like you know, it 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 is actually part a part and parcel of the Weimar Republic in many ways. Right, the, right. the Weimar Republic and the sort of bougie people who made up that that governmental organization essentially both sides their way into hitler right. i mean like they 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 him and haul their way straight into hitler i mean that's right. basically it's a, it's a simplification of it but that is basically what happens they yeah refuse to admit that he is any worse or better than anything that else is going on and, now and get themselves there now, absolutely, of course, once Hitler has power, everyone who says, hey, wait a minute, gets killed. Right, absolutely. So. Like, what, once you cross that threshold, that's a different matter, right? Like, right. if you're stuck there and you're going to die if you do not, like, toe the line to a certain extent, then it becomes a much more complicated issue. But then again, keep in mind, though, that, like, there are certain, you know, you have you have personal lines that you have to draw, right? Like depending on what you know and what you what you see happening, right? Like it, get, it gets very, it gets, but it does get more complicated there. But yeah. leading up, right? That's that it does it does it is a sad unlearned lesson that that hemming and hawing and and both sidesing things only leads to one sort of final result, right? Because you know we've talked about this before. Neutral states in the face of things that are patently bad is actually a support of the bad thing, not a a true neutral state, right? Yeah. So, yeah. The two movies that Paps made for, uh, for Goebbels, uh, The Comedians is about the founding of German theater in the 18th century. And, okay. uh Paracelsus is uh, the name of a uh, a Swiss physician. It's a biography of uh, of this guy. I don't I don't know this guy, the father of toxicology, um, but he is okay. a Swiss physician, an alchemist, a lay theologian, and a philosopher of the German Renaissance. So they're both they're both historical German stuff, right? You know, right. which which the the Soviets were making at the same time. Ivan, Ivan is, is right. A, I mean, it was, you know. it, that, those were all part of the sort of internal, right. um, 
everybody's making of look how great our people are nationalism at the same yeah time. i mean the united so. states is making those kind of oh those, absolutely uh, absolutely sort of things as well at the same time it, it's just it is part and parcel of the wartime behavior yeah. yeah it's why it's why there are so many shakespeare adaptations in england right in the same time period too right i ouch i just kicked my table yeah uh the movie eliminates nearly all the songs uh, but also the play has like 60 songs because most of them are folk tunes, pub songs that are only like a minute and a half long. So so just the stringing of all that stuff together causes. Right. I mean, that was the weird thing, though, is I was expecting a, a lot more music. Yeah. Like when I walked into it, because I I that's just I that's what I thought I was in for was like opera. Like I understood it was not like a traditional opera, but yeah, I still didn't expect that part of it not being a traditional opera was to basically not have that many musical numbers. Right, right. So, you know, looking, sort of filtering through Pabst here, we can still see the heart of this is that capitalism causes people to do whatever they can and backstab whoever they can to uh, to make money to sell right. themselves. Uh, to steal as much as they can and sell their bodies if need be uh, in order to survive. And uh, at its heart, uh, Breck's morality would argue that you got to just feed people. <laughs> um, don't, don't create some sort of moral framework that punishes poor people for being poor. Right. They're not lazy. You've created the system. So, so again... We agree with Brex politics, right? Right. <laughs> we, Bad person who is right about some pretty important matters. Right. Uh, yeah. Now on the on the DVD, uh, there is a very short, uh, like two minute introduction from 1948, 47, uh, Germany, of it. It's formatted as three guys sitting in a theater. I have no idea who these three guys are. I'm sure there's an explanation that I didn't read. Um. <laughs> uh. But they're talking about the movie as if they're about to watch the movie, uh, as if it's getting a revival uh, post-Nazi Nazism. Um, and, you know, one of them mentions, well, this was banned by the Nazis. And another says, well, you know why? You remember the original ending. And then he quotes a line that I cannot actually place because my subtitles are a translation of what he's saying instead of an actual like English translation of the song or anything. Right. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, so the claim that, that the original ending Breck's original ending to, to the play or, or Pap's original ending to the movie. I don't know. Uh, is, uh, part of the song quote, go fight the real robbers of this world, make haste to strike them down and bring them low. It's they who've bought, it's they who've brought this. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's they who brought about this cold and darkness on their account. This world is racked with woe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so again, yeah. a very, a very overt anti-capitalistic message. Um, that at least these guys talking about it in 1947 are trying to reignite, you know, and point right. out, right, and differentiate from. The Nazis by saying, yeah. So, and, and, you know, Germany post-war 
and and even into today is is hardly perfect, but they they do a bit better than a lot of other places. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, certainly, and especially this is a this time period in Germany, right? Immediately post war was a really is a really interesting one because of sort of we're still in the sort of formation of what would become modern Germany and uh yeah things are a lot of things are in flux which uh I think a lot of people tried to have their you know get their sort of opinions out there at that time to try and sort of influence where things were headed um because you know at the time right like you're also dealing with the fact that like um the you know the Soviets are have about 50% of the country and there's and that stuff is all sort of still in flux and it's it's a fascinating uh, time period where I think a lot of po- people probably felt the need to like get their politics out there as hard as they could before you know while the formation process was still taking place. Yeah. Yeah. Now uh, another thing about the music here is that it certainly popularly caught on. Uh, Mac the knife is uh, rather famously recorded by dozens of people and becomes a jazz standard in in English moving forward. Other songs caught on to Pirate Jenny and has some recordings. Um, uh, Goodness. Um, There's one other one I was thinking of. I cannot... I can't place it. Um... Anyway, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Unfortunately, like without some details, it's hard for me to know which one you're going for. But, oh yeah, uh, the I second mean, three penny finale, um, under the title "What Keeps Mankind Alive," was recorded by the Pet Shop Boys, uh, and Tom Waits later covered it on two albums, and William S. Burroughs performed it <laughs> in uh, in a 1994 wow. documentary. Uh, yeah. Uh I think what keeps mankind alive is one of the ones that actually gets featured in the movie too, uh, but maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, it's hard to know because, like, you know, you don't exactly get the title of the song right when they're There's singing no... it in the movie. <laughs> There's no little pop up of what's happening. Yeah, there. you see, so you're like, you know, you do spend some time. Go- I mean, like, other than Mac the Knife, which is like fucking patently obvious, right? All the other ones, it's it's a bit more complicated to figure out exactly what you're listening to. Yeah. Um. Actually, you know what? This I don't think this does get in. The songs that were used are uh Mac the Knife, Love Duet, uh Barber Song. Is it a lot? I'm asking the Ballad of the Ship and the Fifty Cannons, the Cannon Song, and Song of the Insufficiency of Human Endeavor. <laughs> uh but yeah. A lot of the a lot of the songs don't make it through and it's a lot of the more overtly political things that don't make it through. Though Canon Song, Canon Song is actually one of the more political things that does make it through. Because one thing, one thing the original play and this both have in common is definitely the anti-colonial element in the Canon Song. Of the other thing, the poor people have to do is sell their bodies to colonialism, uh, right? Either yeah. as victims of colonialism or as the different kind of victims of colonialism, the soldiers tasked with enforcing it. Right, right. The the yes, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, 
exactly and, and and keep in mind that like especially at this time we're we're talking about the like the pre um sort of complete collapse of pre-modern colonialism yeah where like i mean we can't ever call it the collapse of colonialism because we just rebranded it something else <laughs> <Right>. but like <laughs> the collapse of the the sort of colonialism we're thinking about is is you know we're we're still pre that event which sort of world war ii turns out to be the death nail for yeah um yeah so and that that was a thing that all almost all european countries had in common was shipping their 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 poor citizens off to fight colonial wars on distant shores right yeah uh the Nazis also destroyed as many of the negatives of this as they could find um, to the point where the version we're watching is a reconstruction. Uh, not that we've missed a lot. Uh, right. The original American version, I think, loses 10 minutes. Uh, but the 110-minute version is what we're watching. Incidentally, the French version on this is only 107 minutes, I think. I don't know. I don't know where the three-minute difference is. I didn't watch the French version, so I really no, have no idea. No, neither did I. I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't feel like I had the time to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> got, a, got a lot going on right now. Well, um, and also, it's like anytime, whenever we get into these sort of things where, because this is not the first time this has happened, where there's essentially two nearly identical copies of a thing on the DVD and there's some minor difference between the two. It's always like, do I need to watch an entire movie to find out what the five minute difference is? Right. It's always a really tough sell, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to watch the same movie twice, spend somewhere in the neighborhood of over three hours of my life to figure out how these two things differ by four minutes or whatever. Three minutes is a really, yeah, I almost never can feel like I can do that. Yeah. Uh, Lada Lenya, who plays Jenny here, uh, is one of, I think, only two actors to reprise their role from the stage play. Uh, she is Kurt Weill's wife. Uh, oh, well, that, that so explains So it's kind a of lot. part of the package deal. Right, right. That explains the one, a lot. The one of the three of them not to get fired. Uh, <laughs> Jeez. Uh, did kind of launch her career, though. Um, she... Uh, she got into film after this playing playing a lot of bad guys uh okay uh perhaps most notably uh to us right now uh she is one of the villains in the James Bond movie from Russia with love oh really was a club yeah a much much older uh right version of her yeah. obviously cuz that's a movie that came out in 63 but but yeah still uh, very fascinating yeah so <laughs> it's just it's it's an entertaining movie. There are very funny bits. Uh I think some of the humor I believe the humor absolutely comes from the original play. Like even the Beggar's Opera, part of part of the satire here is the overt black comedy of uh these horrible criminals. Uh just wanting to have middle class values, right? <laughs> and wanting right. to break yeah, into no, the middle class morality. For sure, yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh 
I'd say Three Penny Opera is probably a lot darker than uh, Beggar's Opera was coming out in the mid-18th century. Uh, Right. Well, yeah, I mean, unless I ever see it, I I won't know. You never know. It's always possible. Weird things happen sometimes. Though it was... uh... It was Jonathan Swift who convinced Gay to write the Beggar's Opera in the That's first place. That's what I'm saying, right? So, like, there's some dark ass shit yeah, in the right. in the late 19th century. Okay, like, right, right, some real dark ass shit going down. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> what you alluded to in the introduction, the the stealing things for the wedding, is is <laughs> just that whole sequence is great. I I uh, it's it's real. What's fascinating about it to me is the fact that like how long it actually legitimately took me as a person to understand what what they meant. Yeah. Because the way it's led into, right, like, you, the way you walk through this movie is, is actually, I think, really fascinating in the fact that, like, I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions about this at all, okay? Right. I, I knew very little about it. And you walk into it, you don't, you get this description of Mac the Knife as this sort of nightmare person, right? Yeah. The way he's introduced, right? Um. And you're like, then you meet him and you're like, well, this is just a dude. Like, <laughs> right. And you're like, I don't understand like what makes it, you know, like, obviously this is this, this introduction must be somewhat like inflated. Right. And then, and then it, when you, then like part of it falls apart a little bit just because the, the sequence by which you end up in the marriage is kind of walked through so quickly just to like fucking get it out of the way. Yeah. Like you, you get to that point very, very quickly to the point where like, I met this person on the street. We're getting married tomorrow. And you're like, wait, what? Uh, but then, like, it takes a while. At least it took me personally, maybe because I'm dumb, a while to understand that, like, what he, what exactly was going to happen in order to make the wedding happen right. was just rob a bunch of houses. Right. Uh, it's fascinating. I, and it took me a while to fully comprehend it. And then for me to understand that 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 the wedding was not a scam right they really like they're actually legitimately getting married and not like he's not got this weird scam worked out where he can like meet rich women or something like that and then like convince them to marry him and then use it to rob him yeah it's like oh no this is this is actually he wants to marry this woman okay and this woman actually wants to marry him cool this isn't some weird thing yeah before the introduction of of the mac the knife song the original play and and beggars opera open with peachum and and the beggars uh which is to say all of the the meeting and deciding to marry between penny and mac takes place off screen before the narrative starts which i would be fine that would actually make yeah. sense right like then you're then you're starting the story with an assumed perspective where you're saying okay well they're getting married they're, you have yeah. no reason to believe it might be false whereas this big rush thing right the big rush thing combined with the fact that like he's described as a nightmare person right like oh this is a scam yeah oh it's not a scam oops no it's a nightmare person who uh who is a scammer but just keeps getting uh keeps getting rewarded all through all throughout well i mean that's that is obviously a thing in a movie about social commentary that like that's the sort of person who wins yeah in this nightmare Uh, hellhole place we've created 
There was at least one instance where I think the joke fell flat because the translators weren't trying hard enough. And I wish okay. I wish they hadn't gone for a direct translation. Uh it's still understood, but it takes it takes a little a little more work than I think it needs to. Uh and that's uh I think it's a conversation with Jenny uh and Mac. Uh she says, In Winchester you seduced two sisters, both minors. They told me they were thirty. She says both of them together. Oh my god. Meaning between the two of them, they were right. thirty. Right. But I think that could have been formatted in a way where where the joke actually made more sense. But right. But that's my editor, the editor inside me, wanting wanting it to be a little different. Uh, but that's that's you know we've talked about translation before and uh, and the choices between doing direct word for word translation and uh, doing a uh, well, I mean, it, well, yeah, well, we've talked about it in the sense that like nobody does word for word translation right, for a right. very good reason. Right. Despite and the I, fact that, that internet fanboys desperately want that thing to happen. Right. Right. So, you know, and that's that's the difference between what we're seeing in, in the lyrics uh of our uh, our subtitles versus the actual English translation of the right. play. Uh also being very different. Uh but yeah, it's it is detrimental at times. Uh but the weird thing, the weird thing then is that the uh, the subtitles still go out of their way to match a rhythm and a rhyme, so that you could sing these lyrics to right, some which of the is songs, a, a fascinating. Right? It's a fascinating thing to do, right? Because it's not a thing that most translators feel is necessary. Because you're, I mean, I guess unless the person who's doing the translate, you know, unless the pers- purpose of the translation is legitimately to make something you could turn into song lyrics. Yeah. Which, I mean, I guess so, right? Like, I mean, kill two birds with one stone, I guess. Get, get you that uh, that sweet songwriting credit, too. <laughs> right, right. Get you, get you a little more money. Uh, <laughs> the... Uh, it's it's also very hard to compare what's what's there and what isn't because the performed versions of Mac the Knife that have become so popular so vastly changed the lyrics, particularly right. yeah. particularly later on. Uh like uh some versions have have uh moved to a point where, where Mac's victims are, are perfectly willing. They aren't they aren't seduced in euphemism. They are actually just seduced. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's weird dealing with something where they're like, certainly by the time the criterion DVD comes out, uh, there's legit English translations of most of these songs. And while the film version is not, the play right and doesn't want to be right. the play it is a different thing we are not watching this as it would be staged right yeah it, it, it is a di- we have encountered that phenomenon right. before and this is not that we are not watching the stage play in right. movie form right and uh but still you know there's that criterion obviously wants a fidelity to the original and english iterations right 
you know they want they want the uh the translation of the but that's not necessarily true either they don't they're not going for the earliest english translation of this either no, right and I, that's not a thing they've I ever think, done so like, i think criterion basically chooses based on aesthetics yeah. of the translation like of course number it's also one, i I'm sorry. It's probably also another licensing issue too, right? Like if they went Possibly, with the English yeah, translation yeah. of the songs, they'd have to pay someone else. So, well, right, absolutely. And then also keep in mind that like that that English translation of these songs is is something that probably got translated for the purpose of selling songs, which would make it different than a than the movie anyway. Yeah, I mean, it would not necessarily match in any meaningful way either, and. I, again, I think what it comes down to, I, I don't know how the Criterion Collection does its thing. We've talked about it. I'm sure we could actually find out, but like that sounds like a lot of research. Um, but like my assumption is at some point that there is some producer who spearheads the release of these individual things. Um, and and in that point, that person makes editorial choices about which ones they like the best. Yeah. And 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 when when you think about that, a fascinating thing about that that we probably don't need to get into, but I'm going to because that's one of the things that makes me most interested, is at that point how many layers of people making decisions you have stacked up on top of the work by the time you and I see it, you know, a hundred, almost a hundred years later. Uh, what I mean is, is like there, especially when we deal with translated works how many choices were made for us that are by their nature editorial choices that change the meaning or not change the meaning of the thing, but decide a meaning for the thing. Right. Like, yeah, there was the original translation and then the editor had to choose one of the translations. All of the translations of course had interpretations to them because again, word for word translation is not a thing that exists because it doesn't make any fucking sense. Right. Just it, you get what the internet produces when you right. try to run it through a translator. You get garbage that is unreadable. So a, a translator has to make choices, and that translator's choices are, by their nature, biased, right? Like, they have right. the, they have feelings. They have opinions. They are people. So they make decisions that change the meaning. Not change Again, it's not changing the meaning of the work because the translation is a whole new work in its own thing by by the nature of what's happening. Right. So, but then another editor chooses a translation because there is usually more than one. Um, and then as that process, then that editor probably does edit that translation a little bit to clean things up because the editor themselves the, or the producer themselves probably also wants to have a hand in, in cleaning it and making like fixing things like you and I just talked about where they're like, I don't like the way that joke comes off. Right. And then before you know it, you're four generations down the line from the original work, which you can still hear. So if you were a native speaker, it would you'd just be able to hear it and understand it. But you and I don't get that, except for in situations where we just happen to speak that language, right? Like you and I have had conversations about like weird Japanese translations before because right. I just happened to understand what was being said. And I'm like, wait, that's not what that fucking guy is saying at all. Um, but like that's just a happenstance thing right like i you know we don't speak every language and and i just find that thing very fascinating that like i ha we you and i actually legitimately basically have no idea what's actually being said right right i don't speak we German know well what enough. a series of people who made choices 
say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just a thing that fascinates me deeply. I don't know why. Uh, okay. End of Pat having a really deep fascination with the process of translation. That reminds me of uh, a couple of years ago, I went to see Valley of the Wind, the Miyazaki film. Right. Uh, and on my way out of the theater, it was a, it was a subbed version of it. And on the way out, out of the theater, the guy behind me, I hear him talking to his friends. He says, uh, yeah, there were some uh, mistranslations in the subtitles, but uh, but it was pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, the I Disney mean, yeah. funded American release of <laughs> the yeah, of the sub version mean... of Valley of the Winds. Uh, Nausicaa is is well. There were some there were some problems. It's like, well, <laughs> listen, bud. <laughs> Like what were you expecting? Yeah, well, exactly. And, and I, I'm gonna. I have a very controversial opinion, especially as it applies to anime. And and I, I mean, you maybe don't even put this on the podcast, honestly, because it'll get oh, I'm leaving it. in the street. Whatever happens, I, I'm leaving I, it. I have grown to prefer the dub version because I don't have to deal with the dissonance. Yeah. Like, as a person who can now generally understand what's being said, but need the subtitles for support. Because, like, I'm not good enough to just, like, fucking listen and not, like, and yeah. and enjoy it, right? Because it becomes a job at that point. It becomes work that is exhausting. Like, oh, I'm going to spend two hours, like, working very hard. Um, <laughs> I have grown to prefer the dub version because I can just relax and put in no... And this is not true of the other movies we watch generally. I mean, like, when we watch movies in, like, Russian, my brain just turns off the auditory senses almost entirely, right? Like, it's like, well... You don't understand any of this shit. So let's just not even try, basically, right? But, like, when your brain kind of half understands the language, it turns into a chore. And it's like, oh no, like, I'm going to watch this with, I'm going to watch this dubbed because I need to not have a headache when this is over. Uh, and that's my controversial opinion because people will murder you for that belief. <laughs> I don't know that they're better, but I understand because I've, I've met other people who, are not in the same situation, but prefer it because also reading is kind of an effort, right? Like reading is kind of hard. Like even a very good reader can get tired of reading over time. Right. Right. And especially if you're binge watching something. If it were, if it's a film where I am unfamiliar with the language, I prefer to read it, to hear the original performances. I I, I do usually. Like, yeah. I do feel that way. Although sometimes, you know, for example, I can't do dishes and read. Right. It's not a thing I can do. So if I'm looking to just have something get on. a story and have it on while I'm doing something else, it's got to, it has to be yeah. dubbed at that point. You treat whatever you're using as, as a podcast or whatever, you know. Right. It's not, right. Lots of people do do that. But also... If you do speak the language, but not fluently, woofta. The, the <laughs> subtitle version is is actually a form of personal torture. Right, right. You know, and we've talked about that in the past with some films in languages that one of us understands well enough. You know, like the uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a challenge because you're just like, oh god, I can't. I'm gonna drive myself insane. And we watch a lot of and and. I have generally found most of the time these the Criterion subtitles to be relatively inoffensive. Yeah. They're not perfect, but most of the time they are fine. They are not overtly just completely different. 
right. that's not always true. I have definitely talked about it on the podcast, but it is generally true. It seems yeah. like a lot of times the people who do the subtitle choosing for Criterion, like whoever the producers are or whatever, do aim for air quotes authenticity. <laughs> yeah. It's another interesting note on here. Uh, the woman who played Polly, Carola uh, Neher, uh-huh. uh, was a victim of the Great Purge. Apparently was living in the Soviet Union in wow. 36 and was sent to a gulag. My God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were denounced as... Tr- <laughs> she, among others, were denounced as Trotskyites. And uh, and as such, in 1936, um, were sentenced to gulag, where they died of typhoid. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she left Germany the year after this movie came out uh, and uh, immigrated to Prague, where she married uh, someone named Anatole Becker, uh, who I don't know. Uh, but yeah. They moved to the Soviet Union in 34, and she was put in a gulag in 36, the two of them, where they died of typhus. Yay. Um, So, yeah. It's a very interesting time in history that we've talked about from a lot of different angles now. And, you know, perhaps stuck around. Brecht got out. Nier tried to get out, but went the wrong way and had the wrong sort of politics for the direction she went. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, world's complicated, but it's not great. (laughs) Right. Nope. Never has been. Um, near her, sorry, here's, here's the actual list. Near her was, uh, one of the, one of the actresses to repraise her role from the stage play as well, as long as well as Rudolph Forrester, who plays Mac in the German version, um, but he did not play Mac in the French version. So, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, uh, that's another interesting thing too, though, because it's, you know, a lot of the original cast, at least the principals, making something very different to the play, despite the fact that they are ostensibly playing the same characters. Right. Right. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's just a weird thing to do. <laughs> And then Brex, yeah, I mean, Brex's reaction to it is obviously not helping the situation at all. Right. Uh, Definitely making then, it worse, for sure. Right. And then after he doesn't do anything, he compares, he complains about Paps watering down the politics of it. It's like, well, <laughs> you had your opportunity, bud. <laughs> and, yeah, right. And you threw that one away. So, yeah. It's, uh, what a guy, that guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's definitely uh definitely a character that we will you know, I don't know if we have any more works by him, but I I believe we do. Um give me a second. Um we'll pull him up. All right. So we do, we have so we've watched Pandora's Box and we've watched Three Penny Opera now. Um we have a film called Western Front, 1918. Uh, it's obviously a war movie. 
Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. I that, mean, the title uh, does kind of yeah, give it away. That is spine number 907, so we've got a while. And we've got uh, Comrade Shaft, uh, which is uh, about a coal mining collapse. Some trapped French miners, uh, huh. which is spine okay. 908. So we'll watch that directly after okay. the other Paps film. And so both we've of those got are, a while. Are uh, 10 years away. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. God only knows what the world will look like then. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Great. We'll both be heads in a jar doing this, uh, <laughs> doing this podcast, I assume. I do hope so. Uh, the 50 yeah. Years of Essential Art House uh, from the... Uh, the Janus Films set uh, also can include some paps, but I don't know. I don't know what's in there. I think it might be, uh, if I remember correctly, it might be uh, uh, Pandora's Box. But yes, it is indeed Pandora's Box. So uh, okay, when's that? Or is that oh no, that's not that's, that's not that's something that's we outside. watch. That's okay, that's, yeah. that's that's outside. That's uh, yeah, the Janus. Oh, I Janus missed, uh, I missed you saying Janus. Okay, yeah, yeah. it's a a Janus box set that's sort of outside of of both this and the other uh, the Eclipse collection. Uh, right, it's just fifty films that are are other films that are in the Criterion collection though. So like Thirty Nine Steps in there, Icarus in there, Il Posto. There's a lot of films we've already seen. Kind Hearts and Coronets. It's it's like a it's like a random sampling of the first six hundred uh, Criterion. Right. Somebody's like, "Oh, if you don't want to buy all the Criterion Collection, here's our our best yeah. of." This is, yeah, that, that's really that's really what it is. It's I. There are some films here that we haven't watched yet, but not a lot of them. So I don't even think it goes very far beyond where we already are in the collection. Right. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So this week we've been talking about the Three Penny Opera. Uh, the film version directly by G.W. Paps, the uh, original play, uh, <laughs> I guess by Brett. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but kind of, maybe, sort kind of. of. Kind of by Brecht, but also by uh, Kurt Weill and uh, um, Elizabeth Hopman uh, doing a lot of the heavy lifting of translating John Gay's the beggar's opera into German so that they could do all of this. <laughs> so it's, Oh, what a, what a silly, silly progency of this whole. Yeah, project, no, I, right? it's really fascinating to me that sometimes it's not very often. It actually usually doesn't happen, but every so often we get one of these movies where it's like, Oh, there's a two hour story to explain <laughs> right. how this movie got made. And even then at the end, you will be left wanting. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about another weird curveball uh, that Criterion's throwing us. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, uh, yes. Yes, it is. In a project called Martha Graham Dance on Film, uh, which is credited to Nathan Kroll as if he is the director of it, uh, we will be watching three short films, all featuring Martha Graham and her uh her troupe of dancers who were reinventing uh, or not reinventing were inventing modern dance 
uh, and reinventing what stage dancing was uh, through the uh, through the early and mid 20th century. Uh, Kroll credited as the director, I say, because that's the way usually his name is attached to this usually in how Criterion credits directors. Uh, but he is actually the producer of those three films. They were directed by other people. He is also the driving force behind them. Uh, Martha Graham was reticent to have her dancing filmed, and Kroll came and said, hey, I have an idea, and convinced her of that idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about that next week, Martha Graham Dance on Film. And, uh, yeah, look forward to that. Thank you once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Overtard Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.Bandcamp.com. Hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. It's Patreon.com slash Lost in Criteria. We'd appreciate it.